Good morning, everyone. I hope everyone received a good night's rest in spite of the hour jump ahead. I don't know about you, but I always get a little bit anxious because I'm always afraid that I'm going to oversleep. Am I the only one that wakes up several times at the night and looks at the alarm clock? I, I, I did that, and uh, you know, my biggest fear is is oversleeping when I'm preaching and when I'm flying. Which leads to me, uh, the next discussion, how many of you have travel anxiety? Yeah, I, I'm a terrible traveler. Just ask Sherry. I, I try to have everything organized. You know, I, I have uh, my passport, I have the thing that I hang around my neck. I've got a pin in it. I put my tickets in it. So I, I have all that so that I don't misplace it. But in, in spite of that, it just seems like I'm, I'm constantly nervous when I travel. And it's not about getting on the plane. It's not the actual, or the flying. It's getting there in time to get on the plane. You see, I have a history of events that trigger my anxiety. Some of you may have known it. Some of you may have witnessed it. I've been known to be stuck in a hotel room where the locking mechanism no longer worked, and they had to use an axe to break in after about four hours. I've also been known to be stuck in an elevator by myself, where the rest of my family is down in the, the hotel lobby waiting for the airport shuttle to take us, and I am on that little button that you call and say, hey, help. So there is usually cause to my anxiety. Even as recent as two weeks ago. Sherry and I uh, had a flight to Florida. It was an early morning flight, 4.55 a.m. was our boarding time. So we arranged for a hotel that was close to the airport and we stayed down there and we had done all the meticulous packing and the packing that we have on a travel um, case that we carry on. So because sometimes luggage doesn't make it there in a timely manner, or sometimes at all. And so we, we, we packed to make sure that we at least have one day's worth of clothes and you know, all the essential things that we need. And so we, we get everything set up and you know, we, we make it to the airport. I, you know, I, I drop her off with the luggage um, right there at, at the ticketing counter. And so she just waits and then I go park the car. I immediately take a look at the shuttles. Where are the shuttles? Because I, I, I want to make sure that I drive and I catch that nearest shuttle, so I'll drive beyond the, their stop places and I'll park, and then so that I, I make sure that I get the shuttle and the shuttle gets me there to the ticketing counter. And so you know we had done all that work, we gotten the tickets, so I I have the tickets on my phone, all right, I have the tickets on my phone, but I still want the paper tickets, just in case. And so we got our paper tickets, and, and we're ready to go, and we're going to go through the security line. Now, you wouldn't think that there would be a lot of people at 4 a.m. 
Well, I'm TSA pre-check because I travel a lot. Well, there were only about four people in my line, and there were about 200 in Sherry's line. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be waiting on Sherry and, you know, and so on. <clears throat> well, I don't have to take my computer out. I don't have to take my shoes off. I don't have to do anything except just go through. I put my stuff on the, the conveyor belt. I walk through, no problem. Nothing uh, sets off the alarm. My computer bag gets through. And then that x-ray technician takes a real long look at my suitcase. Way too long. <laughs> and then he does this. He takes it out of there and he puts it on the second roller line, which means that's going for inspection. All right, we're fine. You know, Sherry's still way back. I'm going to be waiting on Sherry anyway. And so they, they open up the suitcase, ask you, and is there anything sharp in there? The answer is no. Okay, fine. Well, they open up and they begin to look and they pull out this one gallon bag, plastic bag of this white powder. It's protein powder. <laughs> so she gets out the little swab, says, we got to check this. And so she checks it and it sets the alarm off. <laughs> that brought on a whole nother level of checks. <laughs> Mr. Cowell, when is your flight? I told them, and they said, well, we should still be able to get you on it. We need you to stand over there and take your shoes off. We're going to do a full body pat down. Do you want a private room? No. <laughs> I've seen enough of these circumstances where people go into private rooms and they never are seen again. <laughs> so no, if I was stupid enough to put the protein powder into the carry-on, then, you know, let's just do it. And I needed to check and see where the suitcase was and where my stuff was going. Um, I watched them begin to systematically take everything out of my suitcase, everything out of my uh, bag. They took my phone. They, took, they had me empty all my pockets and uh, my coat, and they went through everything. Uh, and they, they literally checked every item through that whole process. And I'm, I'm looking over, and you know, Sherry's making it through the 200 people. <laughs> and I'm thinking, she's going to think that I've gone on to the gate, because surely I wouldn't be there still. And uh, she, she comes over, and she sats, and she, she sees where I'm at, and she has that little smile on her face. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I think I cost the TSA a lot of money that day because of how many swabs they went through. And so as they, I was beginning to get really concerned, you know, that I wasn't going to make the flight. Uh, and so as we went through that, and they'd gone through and they checked everything, they said, uh, Mr. Cowell, we have to bring a specialist down. 
And that specialist has got special equipment. And this guy comes in full body armor. And, he, and, you know, and he's rolling up this equipment. He says, yeah, he says, we're going to do this. Now, I knew exactly what the equipment was because I'm a chemist. But I wasn't about to tell them I was a chemist. <laughs> and I was hoping Sherry wasn't going to say anything either. <laughs> everything passed. We packed everything up and we made our flight. I'm an anxious traveler, and you probably see why now. You know what? We've had a lot the last couple of years to be anxious about, haven't we? Whether it's COVID, the economy, jobs, <coughs> loss of loved ones, inflation, and now a war. And I don't know about you, but one of the things that I'm finding amongst a lot of people that I talk to, they are very, very concerned. And I can't believe that that anxiety not only exists in our society, but it, it exists in us. Philippians 4.6, the Apostle Paul exhorts us, it says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. What the church needs today is a heavy dose, a heavy dose of courage. And it's not courage that originates from ourselves, but the courage that is a supernatural courage. Let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. But before we proceed, let's go ahead and seek God's blessing. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us so much, that you care about us so much, that you have given us your word, that you have given us examples and history that we can look back on and see your faithfulness. So Father, as we are going to cover a lot of ground this morning, Father, I pray that we would just contemplate who you are and, and what you have done. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, Joshua is the sixth book in our Bible. But unfortunately, in order to be able to understand Joshua, you have to have a perspective of the first five books. You know, any of you have a, a, a series that you're watching and you come into episode six and you haven't seen the first five episodes and you're wondering, did I miss something? I do. So what do we do? Well, hey, we, you know, Sherry says, we can't watch episode six. We got to go back and we got to watch the first five episodes in order to grab episode six. So that's kind of what we're dealing with here, is that we need to take a quick perusal of what God has done historically. And that goes all the way back to Abraham, or Abram at that time. And we see in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram out of the land of Ur and makes him a promise. 
He says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham, and it, it is he who originates the Jewish nation. Now Abraham has a son. He's, his name is Isaac. He had him at the age of 99. He was, he was the son of promise. And then Isaac had two twin sons. Their name was Esau and Jacob. Now Jacob... Jacob was a special guy. He was, he was a conniver, a manipulator. He was a deceiver. And he liked to wrestle with people. And one night he wrestled with God. And he wrestled all night. And God touched his hip and crippled him as a reminder of what that was. But Jacob was walked in faith. As you read through the narrative, you see that he walked in faith. And so as he, as he had done that, God changed his name to Israel. And Israel means to wrestle with God. Well, Israel has 12 sons. And these 12 sons represent each of the tribes of Israel. One of those sons wasn't liked very well. You know, I don't know if whether it was because he may have been boasting about the fact that uh, he thinks the other brothers are going to bow down to him, or whether it was because they perceived that their father showed favoritism. Anyway, they didn't like him, so they sold him. Now, that's, that's a little harsh, don't you think? Sell your brother? Anyway, they sold him, and so Joseph ends up going down to Egypt. Well, he goes down to Egypt, and he, you know, God blesses him. He uses him through the uh, several steps of interpreting dreams, of giving wisdom, and so on. And next thing you know, he's, he's the second in command in, in Egypt. And Pharaoh has basically said, hey, do what you need, because he tells Pharaoh, there's a famine coming. And we're going to have a lot of years, seven good years, where there's a lot of food. But then you're going to have seven bad years where there's no food. And so there's a lot of storehouses that are built. He says, Joseph, take care of it. You handle it, and we'll go from there. And Egypt made a lot of money during this process because not only did they have sufficient food for themselves, they had sufficient food to sell to others. So up north, Israel says to his sons, hey, we're starving up here. 
Why don't you go down to Egypt and see if you can buy some, buy some food for us? Long story short, they go down to Egypt. They get reunited with Joseph. All right, Joseph says, hey, go back, get dad, bring everybody down. So Joseph go, or so they go back, they bring everybody down, and they stay around for 400 years. Actually, I think it's 480. Well, the, Isra- the Israelites, or the Hebrews, which they were often referred to, begin to multiply. And they become a, a lot. Somewhere around the neighborhood of about two million. And there was a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, or just didn't like the name or what it was associated with. Either way, he, he's got a problem. His problem is, is that there are so many Israelites here in Egypt that he's afraid that the, if they wanted to, they could take over. So he puts them into bondage, into slavery. And he's hard on them. And, and as, a, as a result of that, the Israelites begin to, to cry out to God. And God remembers the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, slash Israel. So he hears them. And so he, he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Moses. Now, Moses was a miracle in and of himself. Because Moses, Moses was supposed to be dead. They basically you know, took the babies, all the Hebrew babies were supposed to be drowned. And yet, they put Moses' mother and sister put, put him in a, a little basket. And Pharaoh's daughter sees him, and, and, and Moses is miraculously saved, and he's trained in Egypt in the finest schools. And he, he he's actually becomes one of their great warriors, leaders of the Egyptian army against the Ethiopians. Moses then recognizes, though, that his people are the Israelites. Then Moses makes a very bad decision. He sees where an Israelite is being beaten, and he takes matters in his own hands, and he kills the Egyptian. That was a very bad day for Moses. Immediately, Pharaoh's looking to kill him, and Moses flees, and he goes from being up here to down here. Because he goes and he becomes a shepherd out in the middle of nowhere, the desert. And he's a shepherd for 40 years. So now Moses is 80. Probably thinks that this is going to be his life for the rest of his life. This is what he's going to do for the rest of his life. God reveals himself through a burning bush. And he calls him. I need you to go back to Egypt. I need you to lead my people out of Egypt to a land that I will show you. Moses goes back to Egypt, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Let God's people go. Pharaoh says, no. Ten plagues. The last one was the Passover. Pharaoh says, go. 
So Moses then begins the trek. And he takes them through the Red Sea. And he takes them on the other, other side. They, move, they uh, move up to the, the edge of the promised land. God says to Moses, he says, I want you to pick 12 leaders from every tribe. What's interesting is that the NASB, I, says, I think, says leaders there. I actually like the interpretation chiefs because I think it's more de demonstrative of who these individuals were. These, were. these were the most respected men of the, of the tribe. And so he chooses 12 of them, and he names them, and he identifies them, and we know of, of course, we, we know of um, Joshua, and we also know of Caleb. So the 12 go into the land, and they're supposed to spy it out. And they spend 40 days in that land. And God said, uh, they come back and they give a report. And Moses says, what did you see? And, and uh, 10 of them says, this was an absolutely terrible idea. We would have been better off going back and staying in Egypt. Boy, how quickly the, the tune changes. But two of them, Caleb and Joshua says, we got this. We can take them. The other ten incited a riot. They, didn't, they were going to stone Caleb and Joshua as well as Moses and Aaron. They were going to kill them. God in his Shekinah glory shows up and spares them. God's angry. Tells Moses, I'm going to kill him. I'm done with him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to make a new nation out of you. Moses says, don't do it. For your name's sake, don't do it. For your glory, don't do it. God says, okay. But he says, for every day you were in the land spying, you're going to spend a year in the wilderness. God, sent, God uh, has them do it, so the people go off into the wilderness. A lot of walking, a lot of talking, a lot of grumbling. And oh, by the way, everybody that was under the age of 20, 20 and under, they're the ones that get to go into the promised land. Everybody that is over the age of 20, they're all going to die, except Caleb and Joshua. So they go into, back into the wilderness and journey, walking, 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 complaining, 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 grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. That's what they do. That's what they do. And Moses, quite frankly, gets fed up with it. Moses goes before God. 
says, I'm tired of these people. They want water. What do you want me to do, God? God says, give them water. But I want you to go, and I want you to go to the rock. Before, God provided water by, the, by striking the rock, or Moses striking the rock. This time, I want you to speak to the rock. Moses thinks that God is being too lenient on them, and he's just frankly quite ticked. So Moses goes up to the rock, and he hits it with his rod, and he strikes it twice. The water comes forth, but it was a bad day for Moses. Because God told Moses, I'm not going to allow you into the promised land. Because of what you have done, you will not enter the land, but I will show it to you. So Aaron dies before they enter the promised land. Moses dies before they enter the promised land, which brings us to Joshua. The Jewish people need another leader. And before Moses' death, and you can read it in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses commissions Joshua to replace him to lead the people into the promised land. So now you've, you've had a quick synopsis of the history of the Jewish people. And what God has done, what started with Abraham, God has systematically brought the Israelites to the promised land. Now, I want you to think for a second. When you think of Moses, what do you often think about? What does Moses often represent? When you see a, 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 a picture of Moses... Is he usually carrying something? The tablets, right? The law. So when we think of Moses, I often think of the law. You know, what's interesting is the perception is, is that the law was there for the purpose of us to know what sin is. But the law was not sufficient to get into the promised land. Now, Joshua's original name was not Joshua. It was Hoshua. Moses renamed Joshua, I believe at God's direction, to Joshua, which Joshua is, in the Greek, Jesus. And the meaning is, is that the Lord saves. So just, just think on that. The law, as represented by Moses, wasn't able to get him into the promised land, but Joshua is. Do you think that imagery was by mistake? Just something to think about. So, <clears throat> before we look at the text in these nine verses, Let's go ahead and let's identify who is Joshua exactly. What do we know about Joshua? 
We'll dive a little bit deeper. Here's what we know. First of all, Joshua was a slave. He was born in Egypt. He was what I believe probably still saw the persecution or the killing of the Hebrew babies. I can't, I can't imagine that Pharaoh backed off of that decree. At the very least, he heard about it. So he was born into slavery. He, you know, it's one thing to know your, or to hear your history. It's another thing to experience your history. He had lived through some remarkable times, but some horrific times. He existed under the tyranny of Pharaoh and thus had been saddled like so many others on the task of slavery. He would have uh, seen the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt, forcing Pharaoh to let him go. He would have lived through the crossing of the Red Sea. He would have seen the Egyptian army destroyed, and therefore Joshua would have experienced firsthand the power, the protection, and the faithfulness of God. But we know he was born a slave. The second thing we know, he was a soldier. We aren't sure where he received his training, whether it be in Egypt or whether it was taught by uh, other of the Israelites. Uh, <clears throat> but we see he so, was a soldier. Uh, we see that firsthand when after they cross the Red Sea, Israel is resting, they're exhausted, and, got, and immediately the uh, Amalekites, or what we call the Amalek, comes to attack them, unprovoked. And Moses tells Joshua, he says, choose some, some strong men and go out there and fight the battle. And we, you know, we're all aware of that battle. That's the battle that they, that they fought. Where as long as Moses' arms were propped up, they, they were winning. And when they were let down, they would lose. And the, you had Aaron on one side and her on the other, and they propped up uh, Moses' hands throughout that battle. And, and the uh, Amalek was completely destroyed. We see that in, in you know, Exodus, uh, eight, uh, Exodus 17. So we know that Joshua was, was a soldier. The third thing we know about Joshua was that he was a leader amongst his people. Again, we go back, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, and he says, Send out for yourselves men, so that they may spy out the land which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of his father's tribes, everyone a leader or a chief among them. So he was a leader amongst his people. He was a servant. Exodus 24, 14. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. Now Moses was the only one that met with God one-on-one. -on -one. But he took Joshua up there, and he took him halfway up the mountain. And he says, Joshua, you stay there. I'm going the rest of the way. You know, and so, so Joshua was obedient. He stayed there. I mean, how many of you guys would say, well, you know what? Maybe I don't want to make this trip. I, I'd just rather stay here, you know, where the water's cool. We're under, you know, palm, and there's plenty of food and so on. Because I don't know how long Moses is going to be up there. No, that's not what was said. He took him up 
Joshua went. Exodus 33, 11, it says, The Lord spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Uh, then Moses would return to the camp. We're talking about the tent of meeting. But his assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. He was a guard. He was a tent guard. Scripture speaks of that in other locations where they, they would have guards that would protect each entrance of the tent. And Joshua remained there. So he was a faithful and dedicated and loyal servant. The fifth thing that we know about Joshua is that he was spirit-filled. Deuteronomy 34, 9, or 34 verse 9 says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his uh, hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Too many times, people substitute knowledge for wisdom. I remember a church where a young pastor came in, came into an established church, and began to replace the older deacons. So, you know, at that time, the deacons were not for life. They were for, you know, a period of time. You, you were a deacon for every two years, and then you had to be off. And that's the way it was originally here at, uh, at East Point. Uh, you, would, you would serve two terms of two years, and then you had to be off for two years. Well, that was the scenario at this church at, at, uh, that I'm speaking about. A young pastor comes in, you know, have, have different ideas, and he begins to replace some of the older deacons as they would, their terms would expire with young, uh, degreed men. Men who were, quote-unquote, professionals. And I will tell you, the church suffered as a result of that because they were by society's eyes wise but when it came to God's eyes they were young babes puffed up with knowledge the reason why Paul prayed for believers in Ephesus the Ephesian believers to have the spirit of wisdom was so that they would be able to discern what God's will was Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom. And finally, the sixth thing that we noticed about Joshua, it was that he was chosen by God. He wasn't chosen by Moses because he was best buds. He was chosen by God. We see in Numbers 27, 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Joshua was clearly God's choice to be Moses' heir apparent. So with all of that as backdrop... Let's take a look and see what God, why, uh, what does God tell Joshua after he succeeds Moses? He says, be strong and courageous in the first nine verses. Strong and courageous. 
Doesn't that sound a little bit weird to you? Why would he tell this man who has demonstrated his loyalty, who has demonstrated his wisdom, who has demonstrated his strength, who has demonstrated his courage to be strong and courageous? I believe that Joshua was probably a little bit apprehensive. You see, it's one thing to be a gap filler. It's another thing to be a leader. Remember, Moses was the physical representation of Yahweh. The first time when Moses gathered the Israelites together at the, at the mountain of Zion, where God is going to speak to them, God begins to speak to them, and they tremble in fear, and they say, Moses, you talk to God and tell us what he said. Because we can't stand it. So Moses, from that point on, was the physical representation of Yahweh. He would go face to face with God and speak to him. And then he would come back to the people and he would tell them what God said, what God's instruction was. So for, for literally 40 years, Moses did that. Now, Moses is dead. Joshua bore witness First of all, of everything that Moses had to do. And second, that Moses died. Moses fell short of the promised land. And if Moses fell short, then who am I to lead? I don't know about you, but that would be me a little bit apprehensive. Because if Moses wasn't good enough, then how in the world am I good enough? Even though it was before all of the Israelites that Moses commissioned Joshua to succeed, Joshua at that point still had not talked face-to-face, one-on-one with God. And I believe it's because of that that God says to him, Be strong and courageous. And he says it three times. He just doesn't tell him to be strong and courageous. He's not saying, sis, boom, ba, yeah, we got this. He's saying, be strong and courageous, and this is the way this is going to happen. He says, first of all, be strong and courageous because of my presence. Because of my presence, I am here. Moses is dead. I am not. He tells us in verse 5, he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses. I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
Too many times we focus on the things and the circumstances around us or the people around us, and we forget that we have a Heavenly Father who is in total and absolute control. I am sorry, Vladimir Putin, you do not control anything unless God says so. Be strong and courageous because of my presence. Second, be strong and courageous because of my promises. He says, now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise and cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as if I spoke to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon, and even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to the forefathers to give them. The fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. And oh, by the way, that land's still theirs. <clears throat> be strong and courageous because of my presence. Be strong and courageous because of my promises. And the third point is be strong and courageous because of my word. Verse 7 says, only be strong and, and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. He further clarifies, he says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Know this, Joshua, I'm going to be with you. Be strong and courageous. Know this, Joshua, I have made promises that I will keep. And if you remember the promise that was made in Genesis 12, it was reaffirmed in Genesis 17. And when he reaffirmed it, he caused Abraham to sleep and he, he fell in a deep sleep and there was a sacrifice of animals and God walked through that sacrifice, the smoke. I've been fighting that all day. He walked through the smoke and thereby declaring by his own authority that he made a covenant with himself that he would fulfill those promises that he has made to Abraham. So he is faithful to that. And the third recognized Joshua, be strong and courageous because of my word. Because what I have shared about myself to you and to the Israelite nation
Application. What does this passage mean to East Point today? The first point, the plan of God has not changed. Let me repeat that. The plan of God has not changed. We may have all this stuff going on around us. It doesn't make any difference. It's not changed. Psalms 33, 10 and 11 says, The Lord nullifies the counsels of nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation to generation to generation. Promises made to Abraham. One, the land. Two, that his descendants would be a great nation. Three, that all through him, all nations will be blessed. The purpose of Israel, according to Exodus 19.6, is that they were to be a royal priesthood. They were to be the way in which the world would know who Yahweh is. That plan has not changed. I don't care whatever the circumstances. It's not changed. God's ultimate purpose in redemptive history is to create a people from every tribe and nation to dwell in His presence, glorify Him through their lives, and enjoying Him forever. The second point, the plan of God is not man or woman dependent. It doesn't matter. We are to be vessels to be used by Him. It doesn't matter that Moses is dead. God is not. I don't know if you guys listen to Mark Job, but he had a series lately, and it was dealing with Elijah. And he was talking about Elijah. You know, he goes in and he does, you know, God demonstrates his power in literally with the prophets of Baal, and Elijah kills all of them. He kills all of them, and then he's got this woman who's just chattering. Jezebel says, Yeah, I'm going to kill you. And he goes off and he starts running for his life and he runs into a cave and he says, finally after a while he says, God, he says, I'm tired. I'm done. I'm the only one left. And God says to them, there are 7,000 that have not bent the knee. Don't be fooled. God will raise up people to do his work. And when he raises them up, he will empower them with a supernatural courage. The third thing is the plan of God requires supernatural courage. We need to understand that God is always with us. I know there are times where it feels tough and bleak, and we don't, we don't feel like He's there. And we don't feel like that our communication is with Him. But He's there. Matthew tells us in 28.20, says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which is forever. (laughs) 
God is faithful to his promises. Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ when he returns. Finally, we obtain supernatural courage through the meditation on his word. Philippians 3.10 and 11 tells us that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Brother and sister in Christ, one of the things that we do not know is the power of the Holy Spirit in us is supernatural. We have the power of the resurrection living in us. There is no greater power than that. And yet, do we take advantage of it? We live in times that require supernatural courage. And God is the source of that. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the, the examples of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua. These are real people who lived real lives here on this earth that we can take heart to in seeing both their mistakes and the positive things that they have done on your behalf. Father, I pray that we, as your people, will continue to be a priesthood, a royal priesthood, of presenting the gospel to everyone we meet. Father, I pray that you would be glorified and that your kingdom come. In your name.